Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. We've got another great episode for you this week, and this is a continuation of the podcast that I recorded down at the Grand National Roadster Show. Before we get into this, remember that this podcast is brought to you by VW Trends Magazine. The magazine for the people, by the people, back on the scene again after a long hiatus. Make sure you go to vwtrendsmagazine.com and subscribe today. Some of the most up-to-date content and different stuff that you don't see in every other VW magazine are on the pages of VW Trends Magazine. Brought back by a host of people that have been in the VW scene for a long time. It's a great magazine to get into and go subscribe today at vwtrendsmagazine.com. This year's show season's already off to a brisk start. April 3rd, we've got Doug's Bugs and Bunnies, Bugarama Southwest in Chandler, Arizona. You guys make sure you come down for that. That may be the maiden voyage for the Let's Talk Dubs Drag Bug. Uh, after that, we've got some new events. Well, some returning of some good events. We've got the VW Classic has been announced again. This year, it's going to be June 5th, so I'm looking forward to going there. They're bringing back the Classic. I'm really excited to see it coming back, and we'll get some more information on that coming up. As you guys are looking forward to the show in October, the one crazy weekend here in Las Vegas, it's going to take place October 7th. I will have room reservation codes available on the website by the 22nd of February. So we'll need to make sure you guys get those rooms reserved before uh, before the show, at least 30 days before the show, so that you can make sure you've got yourself a room reserved at a super low discount rate. So if you're coming from anywhere outside Las Vegas, these are going to be really, really affordable rooms. And make sure you make the most of it. So I'll be announcing that code coming up on the next couple podcasts. And we'll just continue to keep making sure that you guys get your rooms reserved. I'm looking forward to uh, kicking this weekend off again. We got lots of good stuff scheduled for that weekend. So I'm excited. And uh, I can't wait for this show season to go. I'm really excited about the classic being back. Because that's the show that I, that's my favorite. That That's what makes the weekend. And we're looking to make sure we've got that hotel on lock for the host hotel, which is usually some of the best part. So on today's podcast, some of you may or may not know who Russell Ritchie is. Russell Ritchie comes from Aberdeen, Scotland. He's a VW collector. And the best way that I can describe him is if you had the opportunity to own any of your favorite Volkswagens and you could, you would be him. First time I met him was in a junkyard and he was sifting through nuts and bolts like a maniac because he's really, really into preserving, restoring, and keeping the hobby alive. Russell's just a, he's just another one of us, man. Just a regular guy. Uh, he just happens to have quite a few cool Volkswagens. Good guy, really committed to the scene and really in love with the gassers. He's got probably the largest privately owned collection of VW gassers. Some of the notable cars that he owns, a recreation of Pepto that you saw in Hot VW's magazine. He owns the Aronson Holmes, uh, officially the Cowlick car from the February 75 issue. He's got, I mean, as you listen in the, in the podcast here, he's got quite an extensive collection and it varies. It's not just gassers, but it's gassers and Cowlicks. And now he's really started to go down the road of restoring and preserving some vintage cars. And he's just really been such an asset to the scene to really help, you know, push push the collectability of some of these Volkswagens. And he's just one of the guys. He's one of the guys on the short list. Him, Lloyd Keys, Mark Merrill, a couple of those other guys that are on the short list when something becomes available of the guys that would be looking to pick this car up and to help preserve the VW history. So he definitely has a unique broad-based collection. And I don't think he can really be pigeonholed into uh, one specific type or model that he collects. He really likes all of them, uh, with exception of a few. And we'll get into that during the podcast, but it's a, definitely a great listen. Uh, he, you can tell he's passionate about the scene. 
And it was a great opportunity to get to sit down and talk to him about his thoughts on collecting, restoring, and different uh, aspects of that. And also, you get to hear me bust his chops for a little bit. It's a good podcast. I know you guys will dig it. And I'm glad I was able to uh, sit down with Russell and, and hammer it out. So without any further ado, guys, let's get into it this week with Russell Ritchie, VW Collector on Let's Talk Dubs. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have around the house. The 1974 Volkswagen, covered by VW Motors Security Blanket. Okay, guys, so to continue on with our podcast that we're doing here at the Grand National Roadster Show, and because this is such a monumental event, today at, in this hall, this week, there's been people from all over the world. Uh, as you know, the show's been invite only, and I've been lucky enough to grab uh, a pal of mine that I've met in passing a million times like we do at all of our VW events. And on today's show, I've got Russell Ritchie with me from Aberdeen, Scotland. You guys may know Russell because... He has a couple cars, and he's got some fairly significant cars, but Russell's a VW enthusiast and VW collector, and, and I like to personally think of him as a history preserver. So, Russell, welcome to the podcast. Bill, thank you, and thanks for taking the time to give me a chance to speak. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's interesting because in this, kind of what we do here, sometimes people end up talking about people in the scene, like, oh, this guy and that guy, and this, and, and people... You might meet people that have a preconceived notion of who you are. Yeah. You much more than me, probably. <laughs> probably what? But I have gone into circumstances where people are like, oh yeah, I've heard about you, and you know, you're, and it may be from somebody that's not the biggest fan of mine or whatever the case is. So, I'm excited to get you on the podcast because I've got a million questions for you. But the way that we start every podcast is, what's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Well, it's, it's easy. So uh, I'm 53. I was born in 69. And in the late 70s, uh, I remember vividly being taken to see one of the Herbie movies. And the noise and the racing part of Herbie was really interesting as a kid. And when we left the cinema at the end of it, we, my dad, we jaywalked across the road. And there was a Volkswagen Beetle driving up the road who tooted the horn. And the horn made the same noise as Herbie's horn. Yeah. And that stuck in my head for a long time. So fast track from that, you know, where we lived, there was a 66 Beetle across the road and a 72 along the road. And as a child, I always saw these cars and thought they were cool. You know, that was just my uh, upbringing. And when I was like 16, 17, so we're now talking 85, uh, you had Street Machine, you had Custom Car Magazine in the UK. Uh, you occasionally saw an American magazine, whether it was Hot VW or Trends. And I kept looking at these pictures of cars and thinking, wow, I'm really into this, you know. And I was 16 years old, you know. Yeah. And in the UK, we're a bit older driving, so it was 17. So I got my first Beetle at 16. And to me, the magazines have played a really important part of, you know, my... Uh, my enthusiasm, you know, Voxworld came on the scene in 87 and you started to see the scene globally, you know, where else it was, you know, started to go to shows and see the US mags there, you'd pick up old copies uh, and that whole thing just inspired me with the Californian look, yeah. with, the, with the drag racing stuff that was going on over here, probably historic drag racing, you know, your tar babe, stuff like that. Uh, 
and then obviously the stock, what I call vintage scene now, you know, yeah. but I think it's vintage rather than stock. Mm -hmm. So all that sort of stuff got me going. Um, in 85, uh, Colin Burnham, who's done a few books, he, uh, he built a, a car look car in the UK and that was a 68 car and it was a build-up series to show you how to lower, how to do this, how to do that. Yeah. And that really inspired a self-taught mechanic in the garage how to go and do these things, you know. So that was important part for me. And, and in Scotland, like you, so you're you're now bit by the proverbial bug, right? You see, totally. You see this thing, like this this cow look. You've got this this desire to build these cars like this. Are these parts available in Scotland? Readily available? No, I mean, <laughs> our first car we lowered, we chopped and turned the beam. You know, we didn't have adjusters and stuff. You just did it. Yeah, you. The first beetle I got, it was like 150 pounds, so at 200 dollars, and it was in an accident, and we had to change the wing, change the beam because it was all bent. Yeah. And you went to the scrap merchant, you bought these parts, and you put them on, and it was just really a mode of transport uh, to try and create a sure. transport. It wasn't really the scene was something you saw in a magazine. It wasn't something we were in. Now, did you? It, did you find other guys in the Scotland area that are into VWs? Yeah, I've got five or six close friends in Aberdeen that are all into Volkswagens as well. My, my, my girlfriend then and my wife now, she had a Beetle as well. So, yeah, they were still common cars that young people had and insured because they were still relatively cheap. Now, in Scotland, is when, you, when you're a young man in our generation, we're the same generation, when you're a young man in that, is everybody into cars in, like, is, is there a good, like here in, in the States, a lot of guys in our generation... Like your car kind of made who you were in high school and all that kind of stuff, and and that was the driver to get there. Is does it have that same effect in in Scotland or not so much? No, we don't have that same culture. Uh, the culture through through school, uh, high school at uh, in the UK, you don't take cars because nobody's old enough to drive. Right. So they've normally left or go to university or get a job. So by the time I was into cars, I left school. Uh, although I was interested in cars it was when I left school and I was working that I needed transport and that's when you become into it and it's a bit different yeah and maybe that that kind of plays a role into why the car culture is so much stronger here because as you're in your adolescence as you're developing who you are who you want to be seen as in your persona you get your driver's license and now your next step is like what car am I taking to school which then maybe pushes the hobby a little harder because now we're in school and we got to drive into the school parking lot and try to be somebody. You know what I mean? And it's like against all your peers. So maybe it has, maybe that might be a reason why in the U.S. the car culture is so obsessed with like what, whatever is all the different types, like trying to be who you are because it's, it starts off in our adolescence phase. And because you guys are out of school at that time and most people are moving on to get a job yeah. and a career and, and we're done with that ch childish stuff, right? And you've got to remember as well, you know, Aberdeen's the third largest city in Scotland with 400,000 people. That's how big it is, 400,000? Yeah, third largest city in Scotland. So it's small. Yeah. So we don't need... When you're young, you don't need the car to get about the same. We are, you know, here you drive 50 miles and we think nothing of it, you know? Yeah. 50 miles, we're going to another city. Oh, you know? yeah, that, no, that's, that ha that has a big difference to do with it. A big thing, you know, so um, that definitely culture is different. Uh, there's, still a, there's still a huge car culture there, you know, 16 miles from my uh, my house in a village called Stonehaven. Uh, W.P. Thompson, the guy that lived there, uh, he actually was the inventor of the pneumatic tire. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at it, there's some big history comes out of the UK, which is, you know... Uh, Tar McAdam, you know, tar on the roads, not a Scotch person, you know. So 
Alexander Bell, the phone, you know, all these things all come from, you know, we've got a, a great diverse history about, you know, cultures of things. I think that's probably the biggest thing for me. I'm more interested in the American car history than yeah. I am the UK car history of the Volkswagen. Although, you know, you go back to 45 when Hearst took over the factory and that, that was a whole different story. But it's the it's the youth that you guys had with the cars that appeals to me, whether it's a racing or the California. Well, because maybe you were living through it in the magazines like, yeah, oh man. we were. And what's it like to be there to drive that car to do this? And then that starts the, starts the whole process. So what year is your first car that you get? The first car was a 72, 1300 Beetle, 72, right-hand drive. I remember we went and picked it up. It was £150, as I said, and it had been damaged, and we got it home. And I spent a year changing beam, changing stuff, getting the thing working and running right. And then my uncle, who was a Ford mechanic, came down to look at it for a safety check and told my mum and dad that, oh, no, this thing's rusted out. We're not going to bother. And all it was was one sill was rusted. Yeah. And it was a 42,000-mile two-liner car from you. Had I knew what I knew now, it would have been kept. But I sold it to a guy. I got my money back. He racked it around the beaches for a couple of days. It got stuck. It got left and just got washed away. 42,000 miles. miles. And oh that was gosh. in 87, 88, you know. So, but I didn't know any better, you know. Yeah. I didn't know about welding or repairing then, you know. So, you move on and you, your next car is what? Yeah, then a 71 and a 70, and then I got a 66. I noticed in one of your other podcasts how people getting older have done exactly the same. You go back to those older cars, and yeah. it was a 66 uh, 66 model, but it was a 67 car. It had the, the one-year-only rear valance, sunroof car, beige car, and I run that for about four or five years, and it was great, you know? So you, you're, you're in this scene... By the time you get to 66, it's interesting how a lot of guys, they see, they don't know the years, they jump into it, and then you kind of got to work your way backwards because now you're in the scene and it's like, no, 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 early ones are cooler. Is it hard to find early cars in Scotland? Uh, early cars had thicker steel, so they rusted less. That was why you went for the the earlier cars. Oh, early cars had thicker steel. Yeah, so gotcha. if you get a 70s car in the UK, a 70s car is pretty rotten. A 60s yeah. car, the steel was thicker, so it lasted longer, so it was easier to repair. And you guys get a lot of snow? A lot of snow. Yeah, we do. It's the salt in the road that kills it with ice and that. Uh, I mean, uh, the north of Scotland is not the best place to have any type of car, I suppose. But no, the uh, you can get, at the time, back in the 80s, there were cheap cars that were easy to get. And, and the safety inspections over there, big deal or not a big uh, deal? The rust was the only problem you had. If you had a corroded car, you'd have to get it repaired. But there was a lot of bodge repairs where, you know, just to keep them going, you know. So the 66, like your first early car. So yeah. now you're the big deal. You're a big deal in, in, with the boys at home, right? Yeah, reasonably. <laughs> and so what, the 66 there is four lug or five lug car? Yeah, so that was a five lug car because it was a 1300. Had it been a, a 1500, it would have been a four lug. How'd you outfit this car? Hey, honestly, it was lower than that, was it? And we just run it stock it with steel banded wheels at the back. And it was just very plain, you know, just enjoyed it, you know, just used it. Sure. And now you're, so you go into that and then uh, do you stay in the VW scene the whole time? Or do you, like a lot of us, we get married, have a kid, kind of step out of the scene for a little bit, then we'd like, 
we get back into it. Were you always? Did you always have a Volkswagen? Yeah, I've always had a Volkswagen, but I had a, a BKM then had a daily car for work and stuff, and you had the daily cars, predominantly Volkswagen or, 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 or Opel Vauxhall, but predominantly Volkswagen, so Golfs and stuff as well. But the the air cooled the the hobby side existed you know that was the thing we'd go to i had a camper van for a while that i drove but you know it was a it was a two lives you know you had your work life with your work car and stuff and you had your hobby life with your hobby car so so you're known as a collector yeah you've got a bit of a collection what is the first car because collecting it's interesting i so i've always built my own stuff and just recently doing the podcast it's motivated me to kind of preserve some of the hit as i started looking at the history and doing deep dives i really started to get a passion for cars that i didn't build and it's a different thing right because in this world of volkswagens you want the street cred of like i built this car this is me right here right and and i've had several cars built and i've built cars and and i'm known for the cars that you know whether i have buddy help me build one by doing all the hard stuff and then i just take all the credit that's happened several times but uh you know the <laughs> but you know after doing the after doing the podcast, digging up a lot of history, I start to think about the history in these cars. And then, uh, doing the podcast, I, I bought the red car, and then I ended up with the notchback, which is my story for a whole other time. But but it's like it's weird because now I have this uh, I have this whole passion for I, it's this weird thing of like, man, here are these these cars that nobody cares about. Not really, nobody cares about, but they're not really on the radar. But that car is super cool, and here's why. And it's a really good buy. And I, I mean, why not? Instead of seeing it go in the wrong hands. What's the first car that when you start, what drives you to start collecting? Is it just like there's not enough good stuff where you're at, so you buy a car in Southern California? Like, like what, where, where does this kick off? So it, I suppose it kicked off where uh, in the late 80s, 85 to 89, you know, Colin Burnham had built that red car, Luke car. Uh, in the UK, Chris Jury had built a uh, 53 Oval, mm-hmm. first car, look car, most beautiful uh, VW in the UK. It was a great car. And then in one of the American magazines, Eric Berkeley had a yellow and white, it was called the Norcal Looker. Mm-hmm. And those three cars all covered different parts of the scene at a different time, but each one of them hooked me differently, you know. Uh, I now own all three of them, which is fantastic. Really? Yeah, which, which you know... Each one's had to be restored. Each one was found left and abandoned. So that was that's part of the history for me. That you know, it was saving a little bit of them. Uh, and then you fast forward really quickly into '92, and Keith soon came out with his uh, Californian look book. Yeah. And that book then told the history about the clubs and the California style and the racing and that. And that was really the thing that then made me want to look for some of these gassers and look into where are these cars now seen them in magazines seen them in the book but where are they now and the first day uh, the first not so much the first car i got i probably had six or seven in the collection at the time of various things can't remember them but i had them but on ebay the consolidated auto works uh, beetle dragster came up for sale and that was a v8 chassis car with a flip beetle body and it was $8,000, it was on eBay, and it was running up and down the street in California, bought it on eBay on Impulse, we shipped it across, and we took it to Volksworld straight from the shippers, and the car, while fantastic, wasn't really a Volkswagen. Yeah. It was an American car with a V8 engine, and I'm like, oh, this is not what I like. So I had that a few years and sold it, and I got the chance to buy the race shop gear, that was the first the uh, race shop gear, gear is the first one you buy. That was the first historic. That's the first Gas. notable 
dragster, gasser yeah. car that you buy. Yeah. The race shop gear. Where, and where was that for sale? It was, well, it was through Chris Morley. Uh, he had got the car and was selling it. And through word of mouth, I'd heard about it. And uh, I'd made a call and decided, you know, this was what I wanted. And seen some pictures. He'd taken it out to one of the DKP meets before Classic. And the car was seen on the road. And I'd went to Classic that year and saw it and said, yeah, I'll have that. What year is this? I remember I, I, seeing it. I can't. I can't. No, remember. no, no. It's probably 2008, 2000, around then, you're thinking? Earlier. Earlier, before the crash, before the big crash. Yeah. Uh, so everything dates back to, to, to 2000 to 2005 because uh, I'd probably collected three or four gassers in that period of time and a couple of car cars. And then EBI came around in 2007, EBI won. Okay. And that was the platform that gave me the opportunity to present these cars and race these cars again. Up that, until that time, they were... They were just sitting in your garage. garage. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy because as much as... I, like, me personally, I hate, like, setting up a show car, cleaning it, doing all that kind of stuff. That, that That's not my style. I like driving. So doing this has been, like, setting up the two cars here has been a little bit of, a little bit of an ordeal. Like, uh, to me, I'm like, ah, you know, this is the reason why I like driving them. But there's an appreciation of putting them here on display and having people check them out because there's something that people connect with with these cars in that history. The same thing that connected with me with these cars when I saw them and where I thought like, man, well that, you know, with one of the cars that I bought, it had been sitting in the garage for the past, you know, 25 years. It wasn't even at the guy's house. It was at somebody he knows house garage because they, they, they don't live there and he was just storing it there because it was like, I'll store it there instead of throwing it away or whatever the case is. So, Part of you is looking at this car like somebody at one point loved this car enough to take care of it, and then it gets dilapidated. Yep. And the part the, the part about being able to platform all your stuff out there, because I remember I went to EBI 6, I think, in 14. Yep. And I saw a, hu a huge collection out there of all, and I'm assuming it's your collection, because you probably own the largest collection of VW dragsters and drag cars, vintage, that exists, I would think. I would say reasonably, but second, the, I think the largest collector is one of the Japanese collectors. Yes. He's got quite a lot. He bought a lot of stuff in the 70s, 80s. Uh, Before it was really, really valuable, when they were throwaways. Yeah, when nobody wanted them. You know, he bought a lot then. And uh, I mean, I've got quite a few, yeah. I mean, I, I was just making notes there for, for this. We've put uh, 25 gassers back on the track since 2007. And in, in 2014, I saw the lineup of cars you had yeah. at EBI, and it was it was incredible. And what was incredible to me is that it takes a, a, a Scotsman to, to appreciate the history because even today, even today, there are still cars that have fallen off the radar. Yeah, the guy got out of the scene 30 years ago, and there's the hunt to try to find the car, like we just watched with Dino with the with the '67 that he found. Yeah. But there's so much history out there. When you start going towards the history, to you, what makes the particular car desirable? I mean, for you, is it like, wow, this car was built and only raced one time and it came out and it was the biggest deal when it came out and then it vanished? Or is there anything in particular of the hierarchy of the collection that you have that, that like makes things a little more rare to you? No, I think for me, the rarity is the fact that uh, I looked at magazines, saw cars that I never thought I would see race. So when we talk about gassers, to see a Tarbabe or a Lee Layton car actually live racing is fantastic. Yeah. Only to see it in a magazine because it happened 
40, 50 years ago, that's no good to me. You know, I want to drive it. I want to feel it. I want to see it. You know, and so do other people. Uh, as we get into this internet age, photograph today and the internet's gone next week. Magazine's still there. Keith's book, along with uh, the magazines, you saw the cars and it became like a, a sticker album where you had to collect each sticker. I wonder where that car is, and it becomes a challenge to go and find it, you know. Yeah, we yeah. talked about persistency yesterday, right? Yeah. You start to get persistent and chase down these cars. And one of the one of the, the great things about um, about California is that a lot of the guys here that had the cars, if they didn't keep them themselves, somebody that knew them kept them. But they were all locked away in garages, and they would come up for sale. Nobody wanted to buy them because it was somebody else's car. It wasn't their car. And a lot of them were cheap. And you know, you go and buy them and you get them back on the track, you get them racing and you know, someone needed a like Lee Leighton car needed a lot of work because it had completely been destroyed. Tarby was the same, it needed to be just completely brought back to where it was. And that's quite a boost to go and see those cars, you know, on the drag strip again, racing again in the two thousands. Yeah. You know? Wow. It makes it I mean I think this is this is one of the hobbies where we can actually be involved there's one thing with, for example, there's an experience to be had driving a car because this this is an interactive lifestyle, right? You see it, you build it, you drive it. And then there's the experience of like, I built this, mine's faster than yours. There's just something that that's interwoven between the, the personal, the personability, the, the, the competitiveness, the competition. I mean, that's where it started, especially in the 80s. It was like, who is more flashy? Who is more this? But then... The experience of being able to get, I had uh, Bob Daniels, who runs the 80s page, yep. come to my house before this event. And I took him for a ride in the rag chop. And he's like, this is unbelievable. I'm like, man, it's just it's just a car, but it's just cool to be in that car. car. Yeah. It's just something to be in that car, looking out that windshield, hearing the sounds, feeling the motor, like like all those things. And interestingly enough, they're all super unique. You know, when, 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 with the pink car, when I got the pink car, it was like, I didn't know it was an automatic. And I was like, oh, it's an automatic. But then when you put yourself in the shoes of like an 80s cruising car for cruising the strip. Cool. Nothing better than an yeah. automatic, right? You're just chilling at the light. Everybody else is like, clutch is getting hot, going back and forth. But the driving experience is really so much fun of what it's all about. So getting back to your collection, what is what is in your collection of cars? The of the gassers of the gassers. Yeah. So if you if you talk about the gassers, there's Tarbabe, the Lee Leighton car, Little Italy. Uh, I had Holy Moly, but I sold that. Uh, Darrell Vitone's Fiat, the Race Shop Gear. Uh, I had La Snort, which I sold. The Blue Obsession, which I then sold. Uh, Dare Express, which I all got back on the track and then sold. I've got Bear Bellux's one and two car from when he opened up in Beaumont, Texas. Stut B, which I then sold on to somebody. The Save a Bug car. Some Fun and Radical Rod. They're all original cars. And then we've done replicas of Underdog 1, Underdog 2, Lightning Bug 1, Bad Company. Uh, Inch Pincher 1 and Dave Andrews race shop car so we've done those replicas as well now, and on the replicas you could the, the original's been destroyed and you can't find it we haven't been able to find them yet uh, we believe that they're destroyed because speaking to the people over here they're pretty convinced if somebody finds the original one great let's get it out let's get it restored a replica can be turned into something else, you know. But the replicas have now created history because we've had people like uh, uh, Ron Fleming, Paul Slay, and many others, Roger Crawford, all driving these cars. And 
you asked about the passion of driving, like the 80s car there, pulling up to a set of lights and looking across to the car beside you and seeing Paul Slay or Ron Fleming or Roger racing you yeah. at EBI is absolutely fantastic because that was the name I read in the magazine sure. 30 years ago. And then <laughs> to go and watch Ron Fleming and Paul Slay race each other at EBI, you know, with Brian Hirestay, you know, he's raced the old cars as well. We've had many people, Darrell Vuitton, his first time back into a drag car was driving the Intrapincher 1 replica EBI. He enjoyed it so much, we sent the car over to him, he raced it over here, and then he went and changed it and did the 100 mile an hour club, 36 horse uh, with Burley, and got that car into that. So, I mean, these cars have helped uh, reinvigorate uh, some of the older guys as well, because they could come and drive them again, it brought back memories, and that's just really important part it's funny i had that happen with steve connect came down here yesterday the guy that built future shock and he just said i never cared so much about this car until like now like in the past it was like yeah i never even had a second thought he said seeing you guys so excited about this car really changed to him how how he's looking back at his history it's passion yeah and and it's funny because the passion we all get a passion that gets obsessed and, and laser beam focused on this right now. And then we move to the next thing. And a lot of us are, are that way. And I think to see other people appreciate what we've done or what we've been a part of is really like this whole weekend Yeah, is just huge. I mean, this is just such a big deal. You would think this would have a hundred thousand people just in this display, just shoulders. So it's been pretty packed this week, but you just think to yourself like, man, I'm glad I get to be a part of this this weekend because 30 years from now, when we're in our 80s, <laughs> people will be looking at that, going, "Man, I was I was there, and this was there," and and it's and it, and it's it's the hobby that starts to span from generations because race cars, you know, they're they're thrown away like nothing. I mean, I, I remember I I speak to um, Peter Brock who worked for Carroll Shelby, and he's in Las Vegas. We're at a car meet, and he says, yeah, one of the actual Shelbys, when we're done with the race car, he said, anybody want it, $800. If you want it, just take the car. We're done. We're moving on to the new model, whatever. And everybody's like, I don't want it. What am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with an old race car? It's a year old. It's 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 a has-been. That car today is worth $20 million. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's... It's funny how in the hobby things come and go, and then they're now reappreciated. And really, that's what's happening this weekend here. Now, with your collection, you started out first starting to collect the cow, the, the gassers, and cow look cars. It's kind of a it's kind of a dual ended hobby, right? Because the cow look guys then had race cars, or or what was the evolution of your collection? Because your taste has changed as you've been collecting, right? I don't want to say changed. Your focus has been redirected on some things. Yeah, I. F- I think that uh, I've maybe been associated with or known for gassers because that's been the most public thing. Right. The Kalug thing has maybe been a close second because there's quite a, a mixture of Kalug and into racing and that's where it came from, especially if you look back like DKP history and that. Uh, however, the stock vintage stuff, I've equally been as interested in that, but that's not something you do to... Uh, it's, that's not something you're not saving and putting them back on the road for everybody. Oh, that's that car again. It's just another vintage car that's been saved, you know. Right. So there's a different perception by the by the by the people. Oh yeah, and that's interesting, right? Because a drag car so personalized, it belongs to that person. 
a Hebmuller is save the Hebmuller at all costs. It's not anybody's Hebmuller. It belongs to history. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's interesting how, I mean, w- with a few exceptions, there's like the, the, um, the Hornbecker bus. And, yeah. And, and there's a new owner of the Hornbecker bus. And I said, well, if I bought the Hornbecker bus, they're going to be calling it the Bill T bus because I paid the money for it. So we're going to start calling it the Bill T bus. But really, it's the, the, maybe Hornbecker's because he made it so popular being the most low mileage original barn door. But with the vintage thing, you're right. There's no, there's no personalization because it's neutral. It's how it came from Volkswagen. So really, it's Volkswagen's car. Yeah. Or it's Hebmuller's car. We're just custodians of these cars yeah. that pass through time. So if somebody's built a car, so the hardest thing in the world is to build a custom car or restore a car, either actually or be different. If you build something that's unique or first, people always talk it down or praise it. If you recreate or restore something that somebody else has built, you are preserving the history. You're maybe not making history, mm-hmm. but you're preserving history. And uh, there's people who will do cars that will make history. You know, Buddy's car here this weekend. 100%. Turmoil. That is making history. In 20 years' time, that car might need restored because it might get locked in a garage and left. And will somebody want to take that car out and say, hey, yeah. this car entered, you know, the show? Just hope it wins. But, you know, if, if, it, if it had an accolade like that, it would be worth restoring. There's not many people want to appreciate somebody else's car or the history with it. You've now got your 80s cars. Like me, we, we, that period of time when we were young, we didn't realize where we were living. And now you look back at it and you want to get back into that 80s style and say, yeah. you know, I listen to 80s music. I just love it. How I want to go back, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's not going to happen. But the cars still relive. We do things better now than we did them then. Yeah, and we've learned, and and there have been there have been tribute cars built, and I think I think it would be interesting to do you know like for people that are in the hobby to build tribute cars to the eighties because that's to some extent of doing a restoration to a particular time period. You know, like someone builds a modern day gasser of one they saw a picture of or whatever, and they take these different these different parts and pieces and. I would love to see, I've been saying for a while that I think the 80s style is going to be one that's, if you can't find the car, people are going to recreate it. And there's just, with a, with a difference in technology that we have, because most of the 80s stuff, those were, those were used cars young kids had for drivers. And like, I talked to uh, Jack DeJackham over here who had the black car over there. That car was a full-blown show car, every part and piece about it. And he drove it to every show because he was a poor young kid without a trailer and a truck. And so he had to be careful driving it. He had to plan everywhere he went. He had to wash it down. He told me one, one time he drove it to a car show and lost uh, a sand seal. Oil everywhere. And he said, I spent two and a half hours cleaning the car for the show. I won. I won the show. And then I had to pull the motor and replace the seal and do all this kind of stuff in the parking lot. You know, but it, it, it's... It's the 80s part, I think, is is resonating with us, our generation, because that's our youth, you know? In the 80s, we, in the 80s, cars were built cheap, they were bought cheap, and they had fun with them. Now, we... Over-restore. Yeah, and we, because they're now seen as, uh, 
with our valuable and special to us. Yeah. We're not doing it for fun. We're doing it, although it is fun, yeah. we're doing it because we really want to preserve and have that car. So even if you were to go and build a new 80s-style car, you couldn't turn up at an event with a $500 paint job and a $2,000 Beetle and lowered manually with no adjusters and stuff because people would look at that and go, oh, that's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, I know because the red car had a select a drop beam, and the first thing <laughs> I did was get rid of it, put spindles because it was like, like I, re- I didn't have maybe I didn't have as many fillings in my teeth when yeah. I was that young, mm-hmm. and it was about to knock my fillings out. But with the technology that that's that's there, and there, and we may see a time when people are like, no, in the '80s they used the pinstripe from AutoZone, and this was the cheap level of this, and there there may be some of that because you have that with the really hardcore restoration guys where no polish it's flat paint yeah it's got to have orange peel here it's got to this it's got to that so i think you, you may get some of that now so the you're so you're saying your whole time collecting you're collecting gassers and and vintage cars colors anything anything, a, anything cool. that appeals to you yeah. and what's in your what is in your collect what's the first really vintage car because there's a threshold right there's owning an all original 55 beetle yeah and then there's owning a head mueller and then there's owning a dns i mean there's in the tier of vintage cars car ownership there's multiple tiers what's the first to you really really vintage car that you own a uh, swim wagon and kubel that's the two that i would say are the the epitome of the cars. Now, a, a lot of the guys that listen to this podcast, we're just street guys, right? Yeah. Like street guys, whatever. So the the Schwim Wagon and the Kubel, those were produced what years? A 43 and 45. Just 43, 45? Yeah. These are war commission cars yeah. only? Yeah. How many of those exist? <sighs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, not many. It's not thousands. <laughs> no, it's not thousands. Because these, these were produced specifically for military. Yeah. And it's it, it's amazing that those were saved because usually they would either blow them up, get rid of them, or smash them. But somebody kept them, and to find one of those cars, well, there's more chance of finding one of them than there's finding a KDF wagon, which was pre-war. So from '38 to '45, which I, every collector would love to have one of them, but you won't find one, or you'll pay big bucks for it. But a swim wagon or Kubel wagon are probably slightly more easier to. Uh, to get because you see them up for sale uh, and then when you start with Volkswagen you're obviously starting 45 to 46 so I have a 46 Beetle that we're currently restoring and again uh, but then first model of anything you know whether it's a 55 gear or a 4950 Carmen convertible you know I mean I've had a car I've had a Hermula before and personally don't like them I prefer the Carmen version uh, really it, why it's a better car it's Dare I say, uh, a 50 split convertible is probably rarer than a, a, a Hemmuller, to be per- honest. Production wise, you're saying uh, they have made way fewer Carmen's because the, the Hemmuller was cheaper. Yeah, and, and and I think it was seemed more desirable to collect it back then or preserve it because it was different. And, and in your opinion, Carmen was like a real legitimate convertible coach building company, and Hemmuller was just starting, starting, just kind of cutting their teeth on it, weren't weren't as proficient as 
Carmen was? I don't know the actual history, but Carmen probably benefited from the fact that Hebula had the fire and that stunted what they were doing, etc. I think that they... You know, a, a Carmen's still a four-seater car, you know. Uh, usable, more usable. Correct, yeah. So you've you've owned uh, a couple Hebs and you're not... I've had one. You've owned one? Yeah. You had it and sold it? Yes. So in your collection, when you buy... So next question, when you when you buy a Heb Mueller, you drive it, you think about it, you're like, well, it's a cool car, but like, unless it's just me and the wife, that's it. We can't even bring anything with us. It's too cramped. It's not functional. And I want to use the car... Because do you dr- do you drive cars like that in your collection? I, I, try, I try and drive them. Not obviously not often, but I try right. and drive them. I, do you know what? I just uh, I didn't bond with the Hemmler. So it's funny. I'm not really into the uh, the coach belts, the DNS, and all that sort of stuff. I think I prefer the people's car where there was hundreds of them built or thousands of them built. I think that's more fun, more uh, usable, more desirable. I think that. Uh, any coach-built car, really, and I know they've got to be careful because Carmen is a coach-built, but they built so many of them over the time that they were a factory. Uh, yeah, just, you, a, just different taste, you know? Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful car. I, I appreciate the work that goes into them, like the ones sitting here. I appreciate the uh, the historic value of it and that, and, uh, and the, the effort to restore something like that is phenomenal. The same as any Volkswagen, to be fair. Uh, just not, just it's it's not something I would chase to have, you know. I, I been it done it, you know. I, I didn't get the same comfortable feeling. And it's interesting you say that because I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, oftentimes you th- you know the VW hobby sometimes becomes like the punk rock scene. Who's more punk than who? And who who heard this band first? And who was doing this? And and then the collecting becomes competitive of like, well, I have an older one, and I. Don't, but you collect purely on passion. Like, if you don't like the car, you don't care if it's the oldest thing in existence. If it's not yours, it's kind of like, it, and it has to follow a lineage that you're passionate about. Like, yeah. the, like the, really the lineage of, uh, of like, the origins of Volkswagen. Yeah. Because that's the evolution of what you fell in love with. Yeah. And so, to you, kind of DNS, all stuff, those are, those are individual coach builders. They're very cool. They're very rare. But. Brilliant. Not not your cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. No. Uh, hey, and I appreciate that because it shows that, that there's some people have an attitude like, oh, that Russell Richie, he just buys everything. No, he doesn't buy everything. He buys what he likes and he buys things that he preserves an experience for someone else in the future because it, it, I, I maybe, maybe think some of the, the, maybe some of the most disheartening things is to see a car that's a good value to sit, nobody gets it, and then the guy because of pride is so mad that nobody bought it at the price he wants to sell for. No one can have it. It's going in the basement, the backyard or wherever. And it dilapidates from there. You know, yeah, and it then does. gets neglected. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny though. You, you say that comment. I've heard that before. Uh, Russell Ritchie buys everything. So that's based on 20 or 30 Garcels and Carlook cars. There's, I don't know, tens of thousands of cars for sale in the Samba and I don't buy any of them, I probably get 15 emails a month with cars offered for sale because <laughs> I think I want them. The majority of cars nobody wants, you know. My, my, my garage is only so big, I can only have so many in. Yeah. And to be fair, uh, the reality is that because I've got a, a selection of historic known gassers and stuff, people then put you in that bracket where you collect everything, you know. Mr. Kimori at Flat Four has got a great collection. There's other collectors out there that have got great collections, bigger collections possibly, 
but they don't have new in cars because, other than your Hornbecker bus, nobody has the Russell Ritchie 46 or the Bill 45 or right. the, because nobody talks about them like that. Yeah. You can only talk about a car if it's been given a name. And it only, it only, it, and it, I think it only gets a name if there's something so specific about it. And if, let's say, the owner, oh yeah, that's so and so's bus, he'll never sell it, and he owns it for 20 years. You know what I mean? And I, you know, you've got to have that that longevity. What's interesting, I noticed talking to you is, you 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 said that you restored a bunch of cars and then sold them. I the gassers, we got them on the track, we got them racing, and then. We sold some of them, passed them on. I say we, I've got some friends, uh, you know, Kevry, Dale, uh, Morris, my son Owen. They all have helped me get these cars back on the track. You know, Richie Webb as well. There's quite a lot of people have supported me in getting them for the fun. Uh, that's why we use the Gasa Garage name sort of to stand behind because it's not one person. It's a team of people. But there's only so many cars we can uh, run and race and keep. And once we get them back up and running, pe- other people have have bought them and then used them, so more of them get seen by more people. So if you if you if you can bring a car back from the dead, so to speak, and then put it up there, if somebody else can buy it and then have fun, that allows me to go and get another one and bring it back to the dead. And, and that's then, what I was just thinking right now. I thought, well, yeah, it's not like he's just this endless supply of money. You might have bought something for a good a good price because nobody saw it. You put you put some money into it, preserve the history, which then increased the value of it. So that's to some degree it's it's a bit of a stretch but to some degree it's there's also an investment aspect to it like it's another means to you've preserved something now you're adding people to the pool of owners of vintage gassers yeah so that's not just russell ritchie racing russell ritchie it's not you know what i mean and it makes it more fun and you preserving those cars or restoring those cars brings the passion back to more people which i think is commendable because you're doing more than just buying cars and that's the reason for the podcast. So people get to know who you are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm over here just trying to deal with your celebrityism. Just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not as big as you. I, well, yeah, well, listen, listen, sizes and everything. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it's funny. I've heard this thing saying several times. And they're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was here. He's so cool. He's so down to earth. I said, we're just guys, man. We're just a bunch of stupid yeah. car guys that are into the same hobby. We're just at, we're, we all just have different passions. And, and some of us, make the decision we're either getting tacos or buying tires or we're doing one of the two and where we decide to spend our money is is our business but do you know bill there's i think there's six halls with cars here today and there's uh, probably five parking areas outside and this is probably the only hall where people would know my name or your name and of the people that come here there's probably only 10 percent of those people would know us yeah. because the average person has no idea about the <laughs> volkswagen or what we do you know so we're a select few and uh, again i always stress the magazines are so important so shout out to them all people please yeah. buy them because Subscribe. we need them we yeah. need them we need them i mean really it's it's the print media in and of itself is a dying it's a dying medium right and i think for us today Instagram has become the new magazine. Because yep. you go to Instagram, you subscribe. Because for us, we're voyeurs, right? I, I can't tell you how many magazines I have. And out of those that I've actually read, nah, it's a different story. You know, I, I look at the picture. I'm visually stimulated. I run out to the garage. I start working on things. and But I subscribe to the magazines. Matter of fact, I may fire up my subscription to Volksworld again. I had a subscription to Volksworld. And then I, I let it lapse. But I subscribe to Hot BW. I subscribe to VW Trans. I believe in supporting supporting the scene and it's funny when i hear people like oh yeah that magazine doesn't do this doesn't do that i'm like who cares just support it 
you're, you know, we have to support our own hobby. And, you know, when you hear people say things like that, it, it, it's interesting to me because you think to yourself, you're going to complain when there is no magazine and you're going to be the reason there is yeah. no magazine because three of us can't keep it alive, you know, and, and it, it, it is, it is a community of, of enthusiasts that keep things going. So back to your, your, your collection, I'm going to put you on, on this list right now. Here you are, warehouse is on fire. What, heaven forbid, one car to save. What's the one car you save? I do a half one. <laughs> Let them all burn. You gotta save, you <laughs> gotta, you gotta <laughs> save one. Do you look at the insurance man and say, yeah, I hope it covers it. Eh. I mean, and I'm only saying this because I, I had this conversation here about this building, and I'll and I'll share that with you in this building. Like, if there's one car, and I and I preface it on like zombie apocalypse, fire. It's the end of the road. This car, you're not just keeping it, but you got to drive it now. So, so there's a, there's a utilitarian aspect to it as well. Which car? Which car is it? <laughs> I would probably save my wife's one because yeah. that would be the one that have the easiest job explaining. Uh, you know what? P- people have asked me the same question differently. They've said, what's your favorite car? I don't have a favorite because a gas is a gas or a car look car is a car look car, a custom or an 80s or that, a stock car is a stock car. Depending on the day, where we're going, what we're doing, that car would take preference. My problem would be getting them out, you know? Well, no, but remember, <laughs> it's the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, they're yeah. coming to eat your brain. I know you've seen the movies. Yeah. They're coming to eat your brain. You, so now you got to look at a car that's utilitarian. You can drive it. It's you can keep it on the road yourself, and you might have to put more than just you in that car. Which car is it? I mean, I'm giving you a purpose for this. So a '79 1303 convertible, US spec, one year only, last model of convertible. That's probably what I'd pull out because it's going to be the most reliable. The yes, most, the and most. I'll be able to drive away from the zombies that are chasing me. <laughs> You're not going to be the 25 horse having a zombie eating your brain. It won't Listen, start. The battery will be flat. <laughs> I'm sure there's people out there thinking, that's a really stupid question, Bill. But for but for me, it was it's just kind of some, one of those fun things like, you know, and, and, and it's not to say you don't appreciate certain things. Like in this hall, in this room right here, all this history, yeah. everything. We boil it down to who I really am, right? I said, this place is on fire. I got to save one car. But I, I get to keep it, right? It's my car. I'm not saving it for somebody else. I'm keeping it because it's the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, Building's yeah. going down. It's the Lanny Hussey built black 69 turbo fuel injected disc brake <laughs> car. Because not only is it fast, is it cool, but it looks to me like it... That's like at the core, that's my style, like performance Volkswagen, but everything fits perfectly. It's designed, built to be this wolf in sheep's yeah. clothing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I love the, I, I have my cow look car over there, yeah, my, yeah. My, my cow look 80s car, and it's got skinny tires on it in a panic. Things could go a little sideways, little skinny tires in the front and stuff. So, yeah, that was me. What about you in this building right now? This, You're stuck here. There's yeah, no yeah. going back to Scotland. In, in, You're here. Survival time. In this building right now. So I, I'm I'm probably struggling some touring. I have never seen the Pink Lady until here. And what a absolutely amazing custom car that is. Yeah. And a little bit of me thinks that while that's an old car, it almost appears modern. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, a little bit of that. I would drag that out to keep it because the effort on that. And then from that, what car do I most like here? Uh, to be honest, 
I like them all. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I could fix a two rope and drive one and two the second one out with me, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I'm struggling to give you an answer to that. Uh, I think that... Uh, well, we got to talk about usability. It's got to be usable. It can't yeah. be an unusable car. you got to use it. Listen, it's the zombie apocalypse. There's gas stations, all the gas you want's here. Which car? Which is which car is it? You <laughs> I, to be honest, probably the orange square back. It's over there. Oh, do a fact. That's a lie. The car I would drive from here today would be a uh, Rick Sadler's yellow uh, yellow sixty seven. Yeah. yeah, the VW Trans stand, yeah. stand car. That's yeah. close to the exit. I've and it's solid. I've loved that car since I first saw it. So that's one I would pick definitely. <laughs> no, I think. Uh, uh, or, or if I could get turmoil off the stand, I would maybe take put that. We'll push turmoil <laughs> off yeah, the stand. I'd maybe take that. Yeah, because Buddy's going to be get his brain eaten by a zombie, so <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't really matter, right? He's going to be. He got caught detailing the car, and we're down the road. So, in in your collection of vintage stuff, what do you? What's in the list of the vintage stuff? The the restored cars that you have. Uh, I've got a '46 that was just got into paint. That was really good. That uh, we just had to put the right paint on it. So that's happening now. Uh, I've got. Uh, and when you say it's going into paint, that's a three hundred dollars paint job on the '46, right? Yeah, yeah, it's cheap. It's matte. It's easy. It's, it's matte, and it's like you just take it down to the yeah. Earl Scheib or whatever they be have. Be done over next there. weekend. It'll be done. Yeah, <laughs> easy job. Uh, I've obviously got some a few '49s, uh, fifty vert. Is there a big difference? You're talking a street guy here, right? Yeah. Eighty street guy. Is there a big difference between a '46 and a '49? Like when you have the two cars next to each other, is it like, like these little tiny changes that are monumental in 1946 and '49? Well, it's changes in a '49 between an early '49 and a late '49. A good different size of fuel tanks. The, the early '49 will get you halfway down the road. The other '49 will get you most of the way down the road. <laughs> uh, no, I think there is difference. I think that. Uh, there's a, a a split beetle is a really nice thing to have. A novel beetle is a really good thing to drive. A '67 is an excellent car to drive. A '79 is the most comfortable. It's yeah, rack and pinion steer and all the rest of it. We it's like it's like buses. Yeah. Listen, the big bay window is the most comfortable air cooled bus to drive, my opinion, because I I have my my single cab and my I've got my '62 which is my crew cab, and then I have my 67. If I've got a road trip, one of the two, my 67 is more comfortable. Seat back position, a little further back. But if I had a bay window, I'd probably take the bay because the bay is much more comfortable to drive. So, I mean, and that's the funny part. The cars that everybody's into are the cars that are much more archaic and uncomfortable yeah. and lack the creature comforts. So you've got, so your 46 is the oldest Beetle in your collection. Yeah. Where did you find that car? It was actually for uh, Wade Carini had it, the Chasing Classic Cars. Wade Carini? He put it to a uh, auction and uh, it didn't sell and it put up on eBay and I got it off of eBay uh, for a lot less money than the... What was the, what was the reserve that they had it go? And, and did they do this at like a Sotheby's on the East Coast? Yeah, it was. I think it was, uh, if I remember rightly, it was expected between eighty and $120,000 they expected to get for it. What them. condition was it in? Restore, uh, fully restored or unrestored original? No, no, it had uh, it had been it hadn't been restored, but it had been painted and covered up to make it look uh, better. It had been in a museum for a long time, so it had a fake green army paint job on it. Uh, it had uh, the seats had been recovered twice, so I think they'd found it. I mean, found many years ago in the show scene here, 
and somebody had bought it and freshened it up, put seat covers on. So we got it. The green was wrong. It should be a black car. It was a it was a, a an American military car. Uh, the seat covers, the red seat covers, the green seat covers we took off, and there was red vinyl under that. We took them off, and it was original Volkswagen material under there really? with some tears. So we got Marcus in uh, Germany to repair them, not replace them, repair them. So they're stitched, but they're genuine material. The car needs a front valance, rear valance, and that's about it. It's had damage at the side. Really solid car, a lot of original metal. So, again, it needs to be painted properly with the different colours, pan, engine stuff. So all that's been done now, but the car was basically complete. And to be honest, I don't know why it didn't sell to a to a collector, but I think they just asked for too much money for it, and, and it wasn't worth that. Well, because you're taking it, because they're, they're asking fully restored, documented, original price for it. Yeah. And they think, well, we don't care. It's a 46. The paint looks good. And so, well, interesting that you say that because Wayne Carini has it, who knows classic cars, and he and he's got to give a value of what he thinks it's worth. So he's going to give a value of X amount of dollars because it's a forty six. It's got the flat paint, whatever. But it's so far from original that, and when you're buying something, it's no different than buying a house or any of that kind of stuff. People buy a house and they say, "I got to go in, rip this out, change that, do this, and do that, and make it proper the way that I want it." Same way with a with with a car like that. And I think when you start to get in that echelon of collectible cars, the people that know, you don't want to get Barrett Jacksoned. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and that's been my biggest fear with like the twenty, the fake twenty threes and twenty one going through is that that as much as we hate for the collectors to get them and and not, like the collectors that are just buying them to check a box and say they've got one, yeah. what'll happen is as they buy them and they get hoodwinked and they're they're deemed phonies, fakes, or, or not collectible. It'll negatively impact the collectability of the hobby, which is kind of cool because maybe we don't want those guys in the scene anyway, right? But also, we don't want the VW brand or collectibles to be tarnished with a bunch of fakes that you have to look out for. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a... I don't know the right word to describe it, but I think there's a, as a level of collector that if you get into that circles you can start to speak to them about cars and they find out there's a lot of stuff available that changes hands that you don't appear on the samba for sale but it's for sale or can be bought well there's yeah there's a whole sub market of yeah. cars that never hit the market that is yeah. it's spoken word only and, and and that's probably the best cars to buy i mean so i mean if you were going to buy a ferrari i'm pretty sure wayne carini would know every detail about the ferrari right he's obviously a a car connoisseur of, of you know massively, but he won't know about forty six Beetle because he's only ever had one. So you want to go and find out from the forty six Beetle guys about forty six right. Beetle, right? And uh, I think that was the problem. Anybody knowingly wanting to buy that, the same as your fake Sambas, you know, if you know what you're looking for and you really know, nobody like that's going to buy it. Yeah, I think that usually happens to like. I, I don't want to use the term, but I can only come up with this term, new money collectors. Or yeah. like I, I, I did a, I, in my business, I work in construction and I did a job for a guy who's been, who's owned dealerships for years, but just recently became a car guy. <laughs> so I, I watched the 16,000 foot warehouse get filled up with a lot of Barrett Jackson. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but I've seen a lot of cars that go through Barrett Jackson that they're like Thursday cars and stuff like that, that they're just kind of filler cars. And I looked at this guy's collection and he had 
the means to get the best, the best, but you could look at his collection, tell he was just getting into collecting because there was a lot of cars that I knew would not be there next year once because you get hoodwinked, you buy something you, and then you got, you kind of get savvy to it. Um, it, in, in respect, you know, what I want to touch on for a second, because as, as you said that, you said 46, it made me think of something that most of us VW guys, us average non-vintage enthusiasts, and my and, and my purpose of this podcast is to stimulate people's minds to look into other areas of the hobby that they might not get into. And when you said 46, it made me think the war is over in 45. 45 is the end of the war. The, U, the Allied forces come in and take over Volkswagen. And they're like, we're going to build this factory back so that, which is a lot of us street guys don't even think about, we're going to build the factory back so that they can, we can make this part of their economy so they can move. So, and then with help of that, they're going to start later on pushing cars to the, I mean, really it was cars were mostly for Europe at the time, but knowing that, right. Setting the pretense of 1946, the allied forces are in charge of Volks, Volkswagen. Right. And how does that make the car because i guess i guess during the war they there were were there any production vehicles going on during the war if well as or were they all prototypes as far, well during the war, war i believe they were the factories were only turning out military vehicles so just kubel wagons and schwimm wagons or um, is there more well there might have been some uh, uh, like uh, i don't know what they would have called them like type 82s and that you know like a mm-hmm. uh, four but four wheel drive Beatles for the commander wagons and stuff. I, I don't know enough about that history to, to right. comment on it. Uh, but I know that when they started back up in 45 and 46, they were just trying to build cars with parts that were there and what they could get working. So it's it's probably very hard to say. Not 145 to 146 will be the same-ish. And, and that's part of what I'm saying. Like when, the, when you're taking a factory that's blown to bits, you're coming in there and you're like, okay, Let's just get these cars pieced together and get them out. That that history is pretty, in your terms, dodgy. Yeah. Well, if you have you run out of some material, I'm so you just take your next material. You're not, but you're trying. Uh, you run out of one material, you go and use the next one that's available. So you could you could get cars that were fairly consecutive on production lines that have two different materials, two different. Let's say I don't know if it would be hood hinges or springs or something. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the the details the same, and obviously they kept. I mean, I've. I've you know, speaking to Christian Grumman or something like that would have far more appreciation of the, of the tweaks and changes. Sure. But you can see that even in a 46 Beetle, I learned today, speaking to Brian Hirsty, there's three different types of rear window um, a pressing between the split window and back inside the car. You've got an early one, a middle one, and a late one in 46. So obviously when the factory was getting going and the units were getting doing, they were finding better ways to produce the steel quicker in order to generate income so you know these things did change and kind of like land speed record racing right they, they make a they make a bracket for everything right i i'm the first guy with red hair to go this fast like there's what's the first year good production beetle like let's say you're doing like you know what i mean like the factories in rubbles they're kind of getting their stuff put together what's the first year volkswagen starts producing split windows with consistent quality and like the first year that they're solid early to late is this year roughly i don't know i mean if i was guessing i would imagine 49 50 must when it starts to get close by 51 and then in 52 we all know it's a crotch cooler era so they were all the same basically then then you had a bit of a you know your oval the 
your oval split type dash for the crossover into the ovals. And then probably quite quickly, 53 ovals, a really rare car, because in 54 they had a one-year-only door, so it changed them. And then by 55 on to 59, it was probably more set in its ways. So you start to see them getting more, I suppose, commercially aware. Right. Um, that probably happened quite a bit. So probably 56 is probably by the time they got like consistent and the car from one to 100,000 are pretty pretty spot on. I would imagine, I mean, the production numbers would tell you the higher the number, the more likelihood that was. I mean, there's a lot of 56 ovals in the States, so you must have had a big import that year, that time. So probably there was the volume to do that then. What What is the most, what is the most common car you're offered for sale? <laughs> Because everybody's like, everybody submits submits to the man. I would like for you to buy my super rare 57 oval window. What, what is it? No. Uh, I got offered somebody else's pride and joy, oblique custom that they've done to their liking. And you should appreciate as much as they do. Mm-hmm. Because it's really valuable. Right. To them. Yeah. <laughs> and not a lot of people can see the value in it, but I'm sure they can explain it to you through a quick email where you're ready to hop on. Oh, it. absolutely. I, I, to be fair, it's I think uh, some people think, uh, again, they just associate a name and think, oh, he buys everything. When clearly it's not true, you know. And yeah. uh, and, and uh, I think they think it's an easy sell or he collects car look cars, so every car's a car look car or Every car's an 80s car. Or how many people have introduced you to stories that you don't even know? You don't even know how rare this car is, and let me give you the story behind this car, and then you're like, that's not a rare story. Like, yeah. Because you know, I think it, everything is on the surface, right? And they don't put the time and effort into, into doing the history or understanding how things came together. So they just assume, well, this car has got original this on it, so it must be a really rare car. A owner of a car will never sell you a rare car. The only person who'll sell you a rare car is somebody that knows about it that lets you know. Yeah. Because the owner doesn't know it's rare, ever. You know what I mean? If, if you look at it, 100%. if you've got this old lady who's had a car for 100 years in a garage, right? Or 80 years in a garage, it's a 45 wheel, right? <laughs> I guarantee you, she won't be phoning me or emailing me to tell me about a car. Well, that's the, the it's funny you bring that up because Lloyd Key, who you know, and our friend, our buddy Rich Craig's over here kind of keeping an eye on us. Lloyd Key, who you know, when he showed the DNS coupe, I had one question in my mind. I needed to talk to the previous owner. I cornered this woman and I said, how did you know what this car was worth and who told you what this car was worth? And did you believe this car was worth that when you found it out? And most importantly, what did you want to sell it for before you found out anything about this car? (laughs) And she hemmed and hawed a little bit, but it was one of those things where they thought it was a few thousand dollar car and then... A Porsche guy who's related to the family got connected, which it's interesting how it unfolded because I don't think I don't this. And this is the world according to Bill. So be mad at me if I say this, a car is worth what someone wants for it. And if I find a car, someone wants $500 for, and I go get it for $500, then find out it's worth something. It's up to me to say, you know, I think this car is worth more. Let me give you more money for it, ma'am, or whatever the case is, the circumstance, right? But the reality is I I love to hear the deals of people finding stuff, an undiscovered gem before it gets – because the problem is as soon as someone says, 
oh yeah, I'm, I'm putting this up for sale. I, I, I saw it happen recently on a car that was worth absolutely nothing that someone said, oh yeah, this thing's worth a bunch of money. And then the price just kept going up and it's like, it's not worth it. Like I'm the guy that would, the, the, one of the cars that I bought, the guy said, yeah, there was just a podcast on this car when I'm talking to him. There was just a podcast in this car, so it's worth more money. I said, I do the podcast. I'm the guy that did the podcast. And so we're talking about what, it, what it's worth. Let's be realistic. And I told the guy, I said, let's look at this car. Let's be real about this car. How many buyers are for this car? You have a handful. Yeah. This is what they'll pay. And that's it. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me how people kind of get greedy on that side. We're like, oh, yeah, no, so-and-so told me. And I've had that happen to people because I've had to break the news to a lot of people because sometimes on TV I play the guy on Pawn Stars that tells you what your car's worth. And so I've, I really had to break. I had a guy with a four-door Lincoln one time, and he was like, this car's worth $20,000. And I said, it wasn't a four-door Lincoln suicide. It was a Merc, four-door Merc. Well, cool Mercs aren't four doors. They're two doors. You know what I mean? Like a chop top yep. Merc and all stuff. And I, and, and it was, it was beige <laughs> with orange flames. And I was just kind of like, this is a nice car, man, but it's, this is an $8,000 car. It's not a $25,000, $30,000 car. Like, and he was like, you know, the, the, and I just said, no problem. I'm just telling you, like, there's your, if you can find a buyer one day, if you're a really yep. good salesman, but what is the, any emails you got that really, I'm just out of curiosity, and I don't want you guys to email him. That's Don't email him. But what is the best lead you got on something that turned into a really special, a special thing that really was what it was? Because part of the fun, right, is the thrill of the hunt. Like, you get a clue, and it's like, hey, this I heard this is over here, and that's over there. Like, that's part of the fun. Uh, a lot of the gassers have all been leads that have put onto that. They've all been pretty good. Uh, none of them were really offered. It was through speaking to people that knew that I've got them. I mean, probably the, the white color cards here, you know, that's probably one where it was tried to be sold. It didn't get sold. They put it on the Samba. I, like many other people, probably tried to get it. But there was some... Uh, uh, new and uh, this is the Holmes car. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, now, why do they call it the Aronson Holmes car? Uh, Greg Aronson built it, and Jim Holmes had it when it was featured. So Greg Aronson built the car. Yeah, he is had that, he had, a, he had that about two years. It's it's like the car that I have over there is built by Scott Gildner, who was a car builder and painter, first time featured with Scott Gildner, and then Jim Mode was the guy that really got the car in the magazines, and it was so I guess. That G car. Greg Aronson built Tarby, but everybody knows it was uh, uh, Ron Fleming that drove it. Yeah. And uh, he bought it off of Greg and raced it. You know, so sometimes a builder sells a car or whatever and somebody goes on with it. And now for you guys that may not be aware, there's the February 75 issue of Hot VWs that has the car with the, with the that's the first official Cal Look magazine, the Cal, the California Look. That's what it was named, yeah. And um, with that car, it was the guy with the measuring, the, the police officer with the measuring tape and all that fun stuff. Now, that car came up for sale who what what I, i'm i'm less interested about it now more interested about what happened before you bought it what was the circumstance what's the story of that car well the car from greg to jim jim then uh, crashed it it got repaired uh, a couple of owners in the states kept it christy worked at a part shop she had it a guy had it i think jim sold it in 79 so he had it it's nine years he had it it was then sold. It was hushed about the 80s for a while. It was then bought by a guy called Jim Morris, who then stored it, put it into an estate for his kids. It was then hidden from uh, probably 30-odd years. It was hidden out of the way. Lots of rumors going about that it had been turned into a badger or whatever. He'd decided to let it go. He'd contacted uh, some people. Nobody bought it. 
Uh, he then put it on Samba for sale. This is Jim Morris. Jim Morris, Morris. the guy that owned it previously. Yeah. Now, is he a VW guy, Cowlick guy? No, he just uh, he just recognized it and bought it. And, and what did he it. pay for it when he bought it? I don't know. I never asked. He never told me. I'm curious. Not a lot. I think uh, at the time it had uh, been crashed twice. The front valance and the, the hood and all that were pop riveted on. It was just. Now, uh, this car is known as, it's the original Cal car. It had original BRMs on it. Well, it never when I got it because they were No, gone. no, that's what I'm saying. So, when you got, so this car originally had the original BRM. What, what were the traditional Cal look things that were, that were really great things that would have been if they would have been on the car? Like, what would, what were the key things on the car? Well, uh, when it was originally it, f- featured, it had a plexiglass dash and all the gauges, but they were all missing. The interior was missing. The BRM what was type of gauges? Was it uh, Stuart Warner's? Or yeah, and Smith's uh, a combination, I think. Uh, they weren't MPs. No. Interesting. You, but it's so interesting because there's there's so much of this hobby where it's like everybody thinks like, oh, everybody had MP, everybody had this. And a lot of this is like, it's no different than today. Guys can buy brand A or brand B. They probably couldn't afford it back then. They just bought what they got out of another car. But it was cheap. It was easy. And it was you a- could probably go to the auto parts store and buy a buy one of those right there. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so plexiglass dash is gone. BRMs are gone. What kind of brakes were on it in the feature? Stock brakes? Stock, stock brakes. Stock. Yeah. So really it was a stock car, select the drop front end, yeah. BRMs, the plexiglass dash, uh, the, De- it, and the white paint. It was a style. It was a style that made it special, not the what the car was. It was right, a style. Right. And, uh, and by the time it came for sale, you know, the style was gone, really. The engine was gone. Gearboxes. What wheels was it on? Uh, just cheap, uh, like, polished aluminium type, racer type wheels. Just You have pictures of when you found it? I do. I've, I've got You'll pictures. You'll send them to me so I can get them, so I can put, attach them to this yeah. podcast. But... You know, I, I think it's commendable that you you found the car and finding some of these cars. Now, I'm looking for my 63 ragtop that I had that when I, I blew it up and I left the Volkswagen scene for a year, I was upset and I was going to teach the Volkswagen world a lesson. And, <laughs> and, I, and the crazy part about my 63 is I, I bought it from the wrecking yard, drug it out because it was a ragtop. Yeah built the car, finally got it 95% finished, blew up the motor, and I threw my hands up. I said, I can't afford this anymore. I'm getting a Buick. I bought a Buick. It's a, now I have the curse of the Buick that lingers at my house. And uh, now I'm looking for this car. And it's and it's interesting because of all the things, I have so many pictures of this car, I don't have anything with the VIN number on it. And I've had so many people on the podcast, when I first said two years ago, I want to find my 63. I can't tell how many emails I got. People said, send me the VIN number. I'll find the car. And I said, I don't have anything with a VIN number on it. I have the receipt from the wrecking yard because it was illegal to sell me the car without the title. So the, the receipt says VW floor pan and body, $400. And like, that was it. No VIN number, no anything. So I, it's work to find something and it's putting the little pieces together. The thrill of the hunt, but this one was kind of hand delivered to you, right? Well, what happened was that when it came for sale in the Sambra, I, like many people, probably approached the guy to buy it. And it was actually a DKP member, Bill Rogers, who actually phoned the guy and said to him, listen, you got a lot of folk buying that want to buy this car, blah, blah, blah. The person that needs to have it is Russell. He'll be the one. He said, oh, but it means taking out of the country. I do. Said, yeah, but he'll do it. He won't sell it. He won't flip it. It won't be. And I think that was a concern. Some of the people trying to buy the car just wanted to flip it for more money to a collector where I genuinely wanted to put it back on the road and the way it is today. And I think that was it. So it was some of the, 
you know, the scene allowed me the chance to get that car and put it back. And once I got it and we got it back home, the reality of the responsibility was there. God, this car's got that. This car's got to be restored, not over restored, restored to how it was at the day. Yeah, there's no doubt that maybe the paint works slightly better than it was in the day, and maybe this is a bit better because at the day there wasn't the money there to yeah to do it like that. So it was kind of important. No, I, I mean that you said something important: the responsibility of owning these cars. That is a huge responsibility. Like a lot of people think, like, oh yeah, you know, must be nice, <laughs> and those are people that have never had to deal with anything like that because, you know, owning a car like that, you become subject to everybody's opinion. About well, the car. Well, you're meant to preserve it. <laughs> no, no, no. The responsibility to preserve it. Yeah. But also now by being the owner, there's a lot of people that give you unsolicited advice about things all the time, yeah. I'm sure, about yeah. how something is correct or not correct. And they were there at at Dairy Queen in 1978 and saw and they know, it. Yeah. yeah, and they know this and they know that. But speaking of responsibility, right? You're 53 years young. Yeah. You've got a couple cars. Yeah. What is the, in your mind's eye, what, what do you see with the collection in the future? Eh, as in where it goes. Yeah, where do they go? I think eh, we need youth in the scene to allow the scene to carry on. None of us live forever, so the cars do have to get passed on. I'm very fortunate I've got a son that's in the cars, which... Eh, Will help some of them, but the, the responsibility probably is too much, and uh, to give somebody that responsibility would be wrong because that dictates their way of life. I think that that has to be so. I would imagine that in the future, the cars will be hopefully sold on, passed on to other people. Appreciate it if we can create a, a youth culture on the scene that wants to appreciate classic cars. We're fighting uh, age. We're fighting. Uh, the green, we're fighting petrol, we're fighting the environment, the politicians all want to change. I still think there'll be a, a place for petrol cars. I still think there'll be definitely a place for Volkswagens. But if you look at some of the other brands, any 1920, 1930s cars now irrelevant because the people that maybe have money now to buy a, a toy would rather buy something they remember from probably the 80s mm-hmm. and they will have them for 20, 30 years and then what do they do? Because when they, when we go, you know, unless we have family or young youth to carry on, there'll be a, there'll be a, there'll be a cliff. And, yeah. that, and look at the business it does and, you know, all the rest of it. You know, you can imagine, you know. Just like the Model A's and the Model T's, those, yeah. those have dropped in collectability. People don't want them because they don't remember them. Right. It's not part of their history. Yeah. So one of the things that we benefit with the Volkswagen scene is that uh, you still see Beatles and buses in films, in the background of stuff, you know. They're still seen as a as a a style of life, a way of life. So you will still see one parked in the street in a film. You will still see, you know, something used in a, a film about a family with a camper van in the driveway. You know, you still see them. So we're very fortunate that that is still driven. They're still seen as fashionable. Yeah. You know. Now on the uh, on the Aaronson Holmes car, do you drive it? Uh, so the truth is, I have only driven it when it was in Belgium, when it was uh, 
completed and Jim Holmes drove it around Belgium. We drove it while we were there at nights. Now, what was the motor setup in that car when he had it? Was it uh, like an 1835? Yeah, it's just a small uh, street motor. It's a 1700, basically, yeah. A small street motor. So Jim had two engines in it. He had a, The car had a, a big motor. Then it was taken out when he bought it. There was a, a small motor put in it, then a big motor put in it. So it changed. Like, These, a, like the average guy's street car would be they right They were now. evolving all the time, yeah. It, so it wasn't left any sort of way. We've got a period collect, 17, period collect 1700 from the from the time with all the right bits, right, MP linkage, all that sort of stuff's on the car now. Proper Dual, dual carbs? Yeah, proper Weber 48s from Italy, and all that's on the car. So the, the engine's as right as it can be. It's not the Hold original Hold on, it's engine. a 1700 with 48s on it? Yeah. They're choked down? Yeah. No, it works. It really? Works. Yeah, it does. It works. Who built the motor that's in it now? Hey, Richie Webb built it from her hey, back nice. in the UK. So yeah, Richie Webb's the guy with a Death Wish drag race in a convertible, right? Yeah, he, he's got that wish. I got to get... You tell him I want him on the podcast, too, because... I love it. I, I love getting the story. Like, we could sit here and talk for two hours. It's been an hour, a little over an hour right now. I'm going to have to start charging you for and my I, time. And it hasn't been. Anything we haven't covered that you'd want to cover? Oh, no, 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 no. I know. <laughs> there was one elusive car that got away from from the collector that you never saw in your craw that we just talked about last night. The car that lit your fire. The Eric Berkeley car, the yellow and white one. Yes. Yeah. So that's the that's the car I would save in the apocalypse. Right there you go. Uh, yeah. So back in the uh, eighty-seven, uh, eighty-five to eighty-seven, eighty-six, I think it was. Uh, uh, there was a, a feature on uh, a NorCal looker. It was called NorCal uh, looker. That was what it was called, <laughs> and it was a it was a seventies bug, yellow and white, uh, white car with yellow half the front. Of and, the it ha- and 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 at that time in the eighties, it's like who can do the craziest graphics? And yep. This kind of had front a front reverse yellow graphic yep. on it, kind of. A real special set of graphics. Yeah, yellow MP, MP <laughs> spokes in the front, white MP in the back, a French in headlights, French in rear lights, a louvered bonnet, wings, tailgate. I really. It was the car for yeah. you. It was like that's that's California. That's me. That's that's my car. That was the that was the car that cemented my relationship with Volkswagens. Really was so hunted for it for years. Friends have bought me the magazine numerous times. I've got it. Always talked about building a replica because you know it's gone. Yeah. And then during lockdown in the UK, me and my son have been watching some YouTube uh, car shows, watching Kelly Park and uh, the cameras angling round. And there's this red and white looker just appears in the background, and I went, God, that looks like that car, but it's red and white. And the camera guy goes up and he's filming around the car, and the camera flicks into the dashboard and the dashboard's yellow and white and that's the car I knew it was the car and that was something that I had wanted I'm not saying looked for wanted for a, a, well, a long time like you, you you wanted it but you did like you knew you wanted it but you were like you weren't that like ah no big deal it's the car but like when you saw it it flipped something well in well you. how'd you find it you know right. you don't know the VIN number there was no plates on it you know you just don't find it, it and know? it's not a highly desirable car in the scene of collectors right not at all not at all <laughs> it was special to me and probably only me and uh like some of your cars 100 <laughs> percent. but they are but they mean something to you and i, I saw that and so i phoned uh, mark merrill because he's part of the kelly uh, right. park organizers I spoke to a couple of guys and eventually a uh, greg banfall i spoke to so greg's moved a few cars in the past I spoke to greg he shouted out to some of his mates up in oakland and all that where i figured it was that area for a car to go to kelly park the way it did it was kind of rough it was kind of abused you know it was a streeter and uh 
Within two hours, I got a phone call back from Greg Snow. My mate lives around the corner from me. He sees it every day. So, so, can you get him speak to the guy? So, an hour later, the phone rings. The guy's standing there with the car. The guy's, it's not for sale, but $7,500. Buy it in a transporter, in a trailer bang. It's at the shippers within the week. And now, waiting in Scotland for restoration. Now, did you contact the original builder of the car? I have. Uh, so, I phoned him three or four times. Uh, he is a vehicle estimator for insurance company for vehicle <laughs> repairs. Uh, he, the, the, the model in the original features his wife and he hasn't responded. He'll speak to me on the phone if I call him. The only way I could contact him is through his work. I found his name in, uh, on the internet along with where he worked and that and I was able to track him down. He hasn't came back. I was just looking for some details really to help with the restoration. But I think he's another one of these guys that was in the past. He doesn't want to get into it, right. uh, which is a shame because the car means quite a lot to me because it did inspire me. So, Well, I'm sure that when people listen to this from Northern California, they'll have pictures of it from car shows. Yeah. And I'll see if that because I'm sure that car was on display at some point. So I want to make sure that if you guys are listening and you're in the Bay Area and you've got pictures from a car show of the 80s of the NorCal Looker, look it up. I'll let you know in the description of the podcast what what episode it is, and I'll put pictures of it and what issue of the pod or what issue of the magazine that it's in. Let's get Russell some pictures of his dream car on display at a car show so he can make it period correct, man. Thank anybody, you. anybody, you wanna you wanna thank before we wrap up all your mates that have helped you kind of uh, knock this stuff out. You know what? I, I the list is endless. I don't want to name people because I'll miss somebody out. But yeah, there's yeah, yeah. so many people. And they all know who they are, uh, both to my UK friends, my European friends, and equally my American friends. There's no doubt that uh, there's many people all across uh, the world. It's a small group of people, you know, yeah. that we all are part of. And, you know, there's been so much help, whether it's just moving stuff, whether it's picking up stuff, whether it's just speaking, whether it's chasing down. Uh, I wouldn't want to... I wouldn't want to pick on one person, to be fair. Yeah, no uh, problem. It, it just, there's just so many people that I, you know, I can't but thank. And, uh, I mean, I love it. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. I'm glad that I was here and you were here and we get to doing this. And, and, and most importantly, really, to commemorate this event. Being here for this part of history yeah, in the definitely. VW Hobby, man. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for coming on, brother. Cheers. Thank you. If you like that podcast, make sure you subscribe. Subscribe to this podcast and also go down to the three little dots at the bottom if you're listening on Apple. Click that, hit share, share it with all your VW friends. We love when you share the podcast because it helps us grow. And through that growth, we're able to bring you more content. So uh, if you give us a five-star review and leave your comments on Apple iTunes, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. If you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com. Click on the merch page and pick up some merch to support your favorite VW podcast. If you have any suggestions for listeners, people that you or guests, people that you know uh, that would be good guests on the podcast, or p- things you're interested, in, or general questions about Volkswagens at all, email me at bill at letstalkdubs.com. That's bill at letstalkdubs.com. And we'll read it on the air. We'll get your question answered. And I look forward to seeing you guys out at the shows this summer. Don't forget this year, block out your holiday for October 7th for the one crazy weekend here in Las Vegas. Go to the website, letstalkdubs.com, click on Showtime, 
and that'll be some of the details that are on there. As soon as I get confirmation codes for the rooms, I will let you guys know so you guys can book your rooms at the Orleans Hotel and Casino. Well, guys, I've got more podcasts to get out that I took down there at the Grand National Roadster Show. It was an awesome event. I had a great time connecting with a lot of people, and I'm looking forward to bringing you those podcasts. So plenty more in the can, ready to come out. And until next week, guys, later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have around the house.